Black shirts and reds. Rational fascism and the overthrow of communism. By Michael Parenti. Preface. This book invites those immersed in the prevailing orthodoxy of, quote, democratic capitalism, unquote, to entertain iconoclastic views, to question the shibboleths of free market mythology and the persistence of both right and left anti-communism, and to consider anew, with a receptive but not uncritical mind, the historic efforts of the much maligned Reds and other revolutionaries. The political orthodoxy that demonizes communism permeates the entire political perspective. Even people on the left have internalized the liberal-slash-conservative ideology that equates fascism and communism as equally evil, totalitarian twins, two major mass movements of the 20th century. This book attempts to show the enormous differences between fascism and communism, both past and present, both in theory and practice, especially in regard to questions of social equality, private capital accumulation, and class interest. The orthodox mythology would also have us believe that the Western democracies, with the United States leading the way, have opposed both totalitarian systems with equal vigor. In fact, US leaders have been dedicated above all to making the world safe for global corporate investment and the private profit system. Pursuant of this goal, they have used fascism to protect capitalism while claiming to be saving democracy from communism. In the pages ahead, I discuss how capitalism propagates and profits from fascism, the value of revolution in the advancement of the human condition, the causes and effects of the destruction of communism, the continuing relevance of Marxism and class analysis, and the heartless nature of corporate class power. Over a century ago, in his great work Les Miserables, Victor Hugo asked, Will the future arrive? He was thinking of a future of social justice, free from the terrible shadows of oppression imposed by the few upon the great mass of humankind. Of late, some scribes have announced, quote, the end of history, unquote. With the overthrow of communism, the monumental struggle between alternative systems has ended, they say. Capitalism's victory is total. No great transformations are in the offing. The global free market is here to stay. What you see is what you are going to get, now and always. This time, the class struggle is definitely over. So, Hugo's question is answered. The future has indeed arrived, although not the one he had hoped for. This intellectually anemic end-of-history theory was hailed as a brilliant exegesis and accorded a generous reception by commentators and reviewers of the corporate-controlled media. It served the official worldview perfectly well, saying what the higher circles had been telling us for generations, that the struggle between classes is not an everyday reality, but an outdated notion, that an untrammeled capitalism is here to stay, now and forever, that the future belongs to those who control the present. But the question we should really be asking is, do we have a future at all? 
More than ever, with the planet itself at stake, it becomes necessary to impose a reality check on those who would plunder our limited ecological resources in the pursuit of limitless profits. Those who would squander away our birthright and extinguish our liberties in their uncompromising pursuit of self-gain. History teaches us that all ruling elites try to portray themselves as the natural and durable social order, even ones that are in serious crisis, that threaten to devour their environmental base in order to continually recreate their hierarchical structure of power and privilege. And all ruling elites are scornful and intolerant of alternative viewpoints. Truth is an uncomfortable venue for those who pretend to serve our society, while in fact only serving themselves, at our expense. I hope this effort will chip away at the big lie. The truth may not set us free, as the Bible claims, but it is an important first step in that direction. Michael Parenti Chapter 1 Rational Fascism while walking through New York's Little Italy, I passed a novelty shop that displayed posters and t-shirts of Benito Mussolini giving the fascist salute. When I entered the shop and asked the clerk why such items were being offered, he replied, Well, some people like them, and you know, maybe we need someone like Mussolini in this country. His comment was a reminder that fascism survives as something more than a historical curiosity. Worse than posters or t-shirts are the works by various writers bent on explaining Hitler or re-evaluating Franco, or in other ways, sanitizing fascist history. In Italy during the 1970s, there emerged a veritable cottage industry of books and articles, claiming that Mussolini not only made the trains run on time, but also made Italy work well. All these publications, along with many conventional academic studies, have one thing in common. They say little, if anything, about the class policies of fascist Italy and Nazi Germany. How did these regimes deal with social services, taxes, business, and the conditions of labor? For whose benefit and at whose expense? Most of the literature on fascism and Nazism does not tell us. Plutocrats choose autocrats. Let us begin with a look at fascism's founder. Born in 1883, the son of a blacksmith, Benito Mussolini's early manhood was marked by street brawls, arrests, jailings, and violent radical political activities. Before World War I, Mussolini was a socialist. A brilliant organizer, agitator, and gifted journalist, he became editor of the Socialist Party's official newspaper. Yet, many of his comrades suspected him of being less interested in advancing socialism than in advancing himself. Indeed, when the Italian upper class tempted him with recognition, financial support, and the promise of power, he did not hesitate to switch sides. By the end of World War I, Mussolini, the socialist, who had organized strikes for workers and peasants, had become Mussolini, the fascist, who broke strikes on behalf of financiers and landowners. Using the huge sums he received from wealthy interests, he projected himself onto the national scene as the acknowledged leader of I Fasci di Combattimento, a movement composed of black-shirted ex-army officers and sundry toughs who were guided by no clear political doctrine other than a militaristic patriotism and conservative dislike for anything associated with socialism and organized labor. 
The fascist black shirts spent their time attacking trade unionists, socialists, communists, and farm cooperatives. After World War I, Italy had settled into a pattern of parliamentary democracy. The low pay scales were improving, and the trains were already running on time. But the capitalist economy was in a post-war recession. Investment stagnated, heavy industry operated far below capacity, and corporate profits and agribusiness exports were declining. To maintain profit levels, the large landowners and industrialists would have to slash wages and raise prices. The state, in turn, would have to provide them with massive subsidies and tax exemptions. To finance this corporate welfareism, the populace would have to be taxed more heavily, and social services and welfare expenditures would have to be drastically cut. Measures that might sound familiar to us today. But the government was not completely free to pursue this course. By 1921, many Italian workers and peasants were unionized and had their own political organizations, with demonstrations, strikes, boycotts, factory takeovers, and the forcible occupation of farmlands, they had won the right to organize, along with concessions in wages and work conditions. To impose a full measure of austerity upon workers and peasants, the ruling economic interests would have to abolish the democratic rights that helped the masses defend their modest living standards. The solution was to smash their unions, political organizations, and civil liberties. Industrialists and big landowners wanted someone at the helm who could break the power of organized workers and farm laborers and impose a stern order on the masses. For this task, Benito Mussolini, armed with his gang of black shirts, seemed the likely candidate. In 1922, the Federazione Industriale, composed of the leaders of industry along with representatives from the banking and agribusiness associations, met with Mussolini to plan the March on Rome contributing 20 million lire to the undertaking. With the additional backing of Italy's top military officers and police chiefs, the fascist quote-unquote revolution, really a coup d'etat, took place. Within two years after seizing state power, Mussolini had shut down all opposition newspapers and crushed the socialist, liberal, Catholic, democratic, and republican parties, which together had commanded some 80% of the vote. Labor leaders, peasant leaders, parliamentary delegates, and others critical of the new regime were beaten, exiled, or murdered by fascist terror Squadristi. The Italian Communist Party endured the severest repression of all, yet managed to maintain a courageous underground resistance that eventually evolved into armed struggle against the Black Shirts and the German occupation force. In Germany, a similar pattern of complicity between fascists and capitalists emerged. German workers and farm laborers had won the right to unionize, the eight-hour day, and unemployment insurance. But to revive profit levels, heavy industry and big finance wanted wage cuts for their workers and massive state subsidies and tax cuts for themselves. During the 1920s, the Nazi Sturmabteilung, or SA, the brown-shirted stormtroopers, subsidized by business, were used mostly as an anti-labor paramilitary force whose function was to terrorize workers and farm laborers. By 1930, most of the tycoons had concluded that the Weimar Republic no longer served their needs and was too accommodating to the working class. They greatly increased their subsidies to Hitler, propelling the Nazi party onto the national stage. 
Business tycoons supplied the Nazis with generous funds for fleets of motor cars and loudspeakers to saturate the cities and villages of Germany, along with funds for Nazi party organizations, youth groups, and paramilitary forces. In the July 1932 campaign, Hitler had sufficient funds to fly to 50 cities in the last two weeks alone. In that same campaign, the Nazis received 37.3% of the vote, the highest they ever won in a democratic national election. They never had a majority of the people on their side. To the extent that they had any kind of reliable base, it generally was among the more affluent members of society. In addition, elements of the petty bourgeoisie and many lumpen proletariats served as strong-arm party thugs, organized into the SA stormtroopers. But the great majority of the organized working class supported the communists or social democrats to the very end. In the December 1932 election, three candidates ran for president. The conservative incumbent Field Marshal von Hindenburg, the Nazi candidate Adolf Hitler, and the Communist Party candidate Ernst Thälmann. In his campaign, Thälmann argued that a vote for Hindenburg amounted to a vote for Hitler, and that Hitler would lead Germany into war. The bourgeois press, including the Social Democrats, denounced this view as, quote, Moscow-inspired, unquote. Hindenburg was re-elected, while the Nazis dropped approximately 2 million votes in the Reichstag election as compared to their peak of over 13.7 million. True to form, the Social Democrat leaders refused the Communist Party's proposal to form an 11th hour coalition against Nazism. As in many other countries, past and present, so in Germany, the Social Democrats would sooner ally themselves with the reactionary right than make common cause with the Reds. Meanwhile, a number of right-wing parties coalesced behind the Nazis and, in January 1933, just weeks after the election, Hindenburg invited Hitler to become Chancellor. Upon assuming state power, Hitler and his Nazis pursued a politico-economic agenda not unlike Mussolini's. They crushed organized labor and eradicated all elections, opposition parties, and independent publications. Hundreds of thousands of opponents were imprisoned, tortured, or murdered. In Germany, as in Italy, the communists endured the severest political repression of all groups. Here were two peoples, the Italians and Germans, with different histories, cultures, and languages, and supposedly different temperaments, who ended up with the same repressive solutions because of the compelling similarities of economic power and class conflict that prevailed in their respective countries. In such diverse countries as Lithuania, Croatia, Romania, Hungary, and Spain, a similar fascist pattern emerged to do its utmost to save big capital from the impositions of democracy. Whom did the fascists support? There is a vast literature on who supported the Nazis, but relatively little on whom the Nazis supported after they came to power. This is in keeping with the tendency of conventional scholarship to avoid the entire subject of capitalism whenever something unfavorable might be said about it. Whose interests did Mussolini and Hitler support? In both Italy in the 1920s and Germany in the 1930s, old industrial evils thought to have passed permanently into history re-emerged as the conditions of labor deteriorated precipitously. In the name of saving society from the Red Menace, unions and strikes were outlawed, union property and farm cooperatives were confiscated and handed over to rich private owners, minimum wage laws, overtime pay, and factory safety regulations were abolished. 
speed-ups became commonplace. Dismissals or imprisonment awaited those workers who complained about unsafe or inhumane work conditions. Workers toiled longer hours for less pay. The already modest wages were severely cut in Germany by 25-40%, to 40%, in Italy by 50%. In Italy, child labor was reintroduced. To be sure, a few crumbs were thrown to the populace. There were free concerts and sporting events, some meager social programs, a dole for the unemployed, financed mostly by contributions from working people, and shadowy public works projects designed to evoke civic pride. Both Mussolini and Hitler showed their great gratitude to the big business patrons by privatizing many perfectly solvent state-owned steel mills, power plants, banks, and steamship companies. Both regimes dipped heavily into the public treasury to refloat or subsidize heavy industry. Agribusiness farming was expanded and heavily subsidized. Both states guaranteed a return on the capital invested by giant corporations while assuming most of the risks and losses on investments. As is often the case with reactionary regimes, public capital was raided by private capital. At the same time, taxes were increased for the general populace, but lowered or eliminated for the rich and big business. Inheritance taxes on the wealthy were greatly reduced or abolished altogether. The result of all this? In Italy, during the 1930s, the economy was gripped by a recession, a staggering public debt, and widespread corruption. But industrial profits rose, and the armaments factories busily rolled out weapons in preparation for the war to come. In Germany, unemployment was cut in half with the considerable expansion in armaments jobs, but overall poverty increased because of the drastic wage cuts. And from 1935 to 1943, industrial profits increased substantially, while the net income of corporate leaders climbed 46%. During the radical 1930s in the United States, Great Britain, and Scandinavia, upper-income groups experienced a modest decline in their share of the national income, but in Germany, the top 5% enjoyed a 15% gain. Despite this record, most writers have ignored fascism's close collaboration with big business. Some even argue that business was not a beneficiary, but a victim of fascism. Angelo Codevilla, a Hoover Institute conservative scribe, blithely announced, If fascism means anything, it means government ownership and control of business. Commentary 8-94 Thus, fascism is misrepresented as a mutant form of socialism. In fact, if fascism means anything, it means all-out government support for business and severe repression of anti-business, pro-labor forces. Is fascism merely a dictatorial force in the service of capitalism? That may not be all it is, but that certainly is an important part of fascism's race on debt, the function Hitler himself kept referring to when he talked about saving the industrialists and bankers from Bolshevism. It is a subject that deserves far more attention than it has received. While the fascists might have believed they were saving the plutocrats from the Reds, in fact, the revolutionary left was never strong enough to take state power in either Italy or Germany. Popular forces, however, were strong enough to cut into profit rates and interfere with the capital accumulation process. This frustrated capitalism's attempts to resolve its internal contradictions by shifting more and more of its costs onto the backs of the working populace. Revolution or no revolution, this democratic working class resistance was troublesome to the moneyed interests. Along with serving the capitalists, fascist leaders served themselves. 
getting in on the money at every opportunity. Their personal greed and their class loyalties were two sides of the same coin. Mussolini and his cohorts lived lavishly, cavorting within the higher circles of wealth and aristocracy. Nazi officials and SS commanders amassed personal fortunes by plundering conquered territories and stealing from concentration camp inmates and other political victims. Huge amounts were made from secretly owned, well-connected businesses and from contracting out camp slave labor to industrial firms like IG Farben and Krupp. Hitler is usually portrayed as an ideological fanatic, uninterested in crass material things. In fact, he accumulated an immense fortune, much of it in questionable ways. He expropriated artworks from the public domain. He stole enormous sums from Nazi party coffers. He invented a new concept, the quote, personality right, unquote, that enabled him to charge a small fee for every postage stamp with his picture on it, a venture that made him hundreds of millions of marks. The greatest source of Hitler's wealth was a secret slush fund to which leading German industrialists regularly donated. Hitler knew that as long as German industry was making money, his private money sources would be inexhaustible. Thus, he'd see to it that German industry was never better off than under his rule, by launching, for one thing, gigantic armament projects, or what we today would call fat defense contracts. Far from being the ascetic, Hitler lived self-indulgently. During his entire tenure in office, he got special rulings from the German tax office that allowed him to avoid paying income or property taxes. He had a motor pool of limousines, private apartments, country homes, a vast staff of servants, and a majestic estate in the Alps. His happiest times were spent entertaining European royalty, including the Duke and Duchess of Windsor, who numbered among his enthusiastic admirers. Kudos for Adolf and Benito. Italian fascism and German Nazism had their admirers within the US business community and the corporate-owned press. Bankers, publishers, and industrialists, including the likes of Henry Ford, traveled to Rome and Berlin to pay homage, receive medals, and strike profitable deals. Many did their utmost to advance the Nazi war effort, sharing military-industrial secrets and engaging in secret transactions with the Nazi government, even after the United States entered the war. During the 1920s and early 1930s, major publications like Fortune, The Wall Street Journal, Saturday Evening Post, New York Times, Chicago Tribune, and Christian Science Monitor hailed Mussolini as the man who rescued Italy from anarchy and radicalism. They spun rhapsodic fantasies of a resurrected Italy where poverty and exploitation had suddenly disappeared, where reds had been vanquished, harmony reigned, and black shirts protected a, quote, new democracy, unquote. The Italian language press in the United States eagerly joined the chorus. The two most influential papers, La Italia of San Francisco, financed largely by A.P. Gianni's Bank of America, and Il Progresso of New York, owned by multimillionaire Generoso Pope, looked favorably upon the fascist regime and suggested that the United States could benefit from a similar social order. Some dissenters refused to join the We Adore Benito chorus. The nation reminded its readers that Mussolini was not saving democracy, but destroying it. Progressives of all stripes and various labor leaders denounced fascism, but their critical sentiments received little exposure in the US corporate media. As with Mussolini, so with Hitler. 
The press did not look too unkindly upon Der Fuhrer's Nazi dictatorship. There was a strong, give Adolf a chance, contingent, some of it greased by Nazi money. In exchange for more positive coverage in the Hearst newspapers, for instance, the Nazis paid almost 10 times the standard subscription rate for Hearst's INS wire service. In return, William Randolph Hearst instructed his correspondents in Germany to file friendly reports about Hitler's regime. Those who refused were transferred or fired. Hearst newspapers even opened their pages to occasional guest columns by prominent Nazi leaders like Alfred Rosenberg and Hermann Göring. By the mid to late 1930s, Italy and Germany, allied with Japan, another industrial latecomer, were aggressively seeking a share of the world's markets and colonial booty, an expansionism that brought them increasingly into conflict with more established Western capitalist nations like Great Britain, France, and the United States. As the clouds of war gathered, U.S. press opinion about the Axis powers took on a decisively critical tone. The rest of this text will be available to Epoch of Incredulity patrons over the next couple of months, or however long it takes me to record and edit the narrations for the rest of the book, at patreon.com slash epicincredulity. Non-patrons may have to wait until January of 2023. Oof. But we do have a $1 tier, so I don't know, keep that in mind, I guess. And for now, comrades, enjoy your epoch. <laughs>